Hello, how are you? Uh, welcome to Sound Perspective. This is your host, Alfred Faber. I'm a student in my final year at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School in Sydney, and I'm really passionate about sound in film. In this podcast, I chat to the people responsible for the soundtracks of film and art, and this episode is a fabulous one. It was a great pleasure to chat with Annie Breslin. Annie is a big name in Australian sound design, having been a sound editor since the early 80s. She's worked with some really talented Aussie female directors such as Samantha Lang, Gillian Armstrong and Rachel Perkins. She's a really great example of the kind of talented sound practitioners that Australia has to offer. But something I was really excited to talk about was her new job. Uh, for the past few years, she's been working in film archiving and preservation, uh, first at the National Film and Sound Archive in Canberra, now at the New South Wales State Library. And before we get into the interview, uh, I just wanted to thank some people for the feedback I've gotten since the last episode. I got an email from Francisco Pedamonte, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, from Argentina. Uh, saying he enjoyed the Peter Strickland and Yulia Ackerholt episodes. Thanks so much, dude. I love hearing that people from other parts of the world are interested in this stuff. I also got a really nice review on iTunes. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please uh, leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. And I love hearing feedback. So if you want to shoot me a message, the email is contact at soundperspectivepodcast.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. So anyway, uh, on to the episode. Hope you enjoy. Annie Breslin, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about your history in sound and how you got into it? Um, I think it probably goes, it's probably genetic. It goes mm. back way through my family. Everything that I have done has always been completely... Uh, inspired by sound or instigated by sound. I can I can tell you, I can recognise people's voices, but I don't recognise their face, for mm. example. Um, so it goes way back to childhood. But um, I got into sound because well, initially I got into um, post-production. Mm. I wanted to, actually wanted to make music videos when I left school. Really? That's what I wanted to do. I wanted, but I wanted to specifically put images and music together yeah. as an art form. And I was really lucky and I got a job at the ABC mm. where I was extensively trained for two years. Mm. And whilst I was there, I was an assistant editor, so I was working mm. on film, and I got the opportunity to sometimes go and play in a sound effects library and make a little soundscape for a scene that we were cutting, mm. for example. And um, I just loved it. I loved mm. it. I mean, I still, I really like film editing as well, but um, I never forget the time that I was able to put some office sounds into a scene and end it with a door slam and, and think, oh, wow, that was just amazing. So you're creating pace and, mm. and layers and... Um, and so, yeah, so then I went overseas and did the obligatory, you know, backpacking around Europe thing for a year. Mm. And when I came back, um, 
I got a job freelance and I started working on films and I was just really lucky to get a fantastic sound editor who took me under his wing. It was mm. back in the days when there was a real mentorship and there'd be yeah. five or six people on any one production, both on the image and the sound side. Mm. And I worked with him for years and years and sort of made my way up and became an editor mm. in that time. So you were kind of trained at the ABC then. They, yeah. they really trained people a lot back then, didn't they? They sure did. I think mm. they had 30 editors. Really? When I was there, yeah. Mm, mm. I think maybe they have two now. Mm. Yeah. Do you think it's more difficult for uh, people to come into the world of post-sound these days? I think it's a really different landscape, you mm. know. Back then it was ex- equipment was really expensive and there were certain processes that were laboriously long and, and um, now anyone can do it, mm. you know. Anyone can get a Pro Tool system and do it in their, in their home, mm. Um to some degree, probably wouldn't want to be recording ADR and Foley or drums. Mm. But, um, but um, and there's people making content all over mm. the place and they'd all need sound. Whether people understand that they need sound, mm. good sound on their content is another matter. Mm. So, but um, there's so much more out there that it's just, it's just very different, you know. Um, it's a different way of doing it. You can learn, you can you can experiment, you can practice, you can find a core group of people that you work well with and mm. you can create whatever that film or that project needs. I mean, it is good to go to film school and it is great to have mentorship. I read something interesting in an interview with you about uh, your father's influence on your like love of sound and how he would take you to places with interesting acoustics or something yeah it's all his fault (laughs) (laughs) he um he used to march us around it was five kids in our family and we'd be marched off uh, on the weekends to go and listen to acoustic spaces really yeah it was pretty cool actually that's wild yeah Yeah. and even then many many years later when he was much older when he traveled europe he he didn't take any photographs he just took recordings of various cathedrals and galleries and was he a musician or a sound no i no, he's a pharmacist. Oh. But I think really what happened is that I, if there was one reason why, why I went into sound in a sort of kind of, um, you know, metaphysical way, is because I watched my parents, who I love dearly, mm. not really fulfill their creative destinies. And mm. so when I hit that age, I went, I'm, I'm not going to be a physiotherapist or a pharmacist. I'm going to do yeah. what I actually want to do, which is tell stories yeah. with film and image, film yeah. and sound. Cool. Yeah. When it did come the time for you to break into that creative industry that you wanted to. Uh, I can't, I imagine there must have been pretty few female soundies around. When I left school, man, the three choices that we had were to be a teacher, a secretary or a nurse. Yeah. And I remember going, I don't want to do that. And I had a fantastic biology teacher who would get me information about, say, Film Australia or... um, No, there there weren't very many people doing anything to do with film. Mm people, male or female, but mm. later on as time went on, there weren't very many females sound editors, you're right. Mm. But mm. A lot of people came from radio or music recording or um, England, <laughs> the BBC in England. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or Crawford's actually, but that was, yeah, it was very male-dominated industry. Mm. Yeah. And how did you how did you kind of manage to break into it? I had a really great... Um, mentor who, mm. who um, took me under his wing and I was his assistant for a long time and then as time went on he you know give me the on a television show give me the job of doing the dialogue editing and then yeah. the effects editing and um, yeah I, it was also the time of 10BA 
mm. which was the 80s. And 10BA was this fantastic, some would say, um, tax incentive where people could invest $150, uh, $100 and they get $150 back off their tax. Mm. And that went for the entire of the 80s, which was basically when I hit the freelance industry. Mm. And there was more films and there were people that could do things. And so, really? oh, it was incredible. There were times when I felt like I was an employment agent because I'd be <laughs> going, okay, well, you can do the first six weeks and you, and then I'll take over and then you can do, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. we bring this person in and they might need some training, but, we'll, you know, and ev- so everyone was really given a great deal of opportunity yeah. just because there wasn't enough people to do the job. Mm. What happened at that time also was you were kind of trusted you know, everyone was a young filmmaker. It was kind of mm. real anti-establishment stuff going on. Yeah. Very youthful industry, even yeah. though we'd had an industry, you know, in the early 1900s, but this was kind of the resurgence. Mm. So it felt really mm. youthful. And you could do anything you like, you know, like one of the first films I did was a film called Darkroom. And I just had 35 millimeter loops of Atmos traveling all around the, the cutting room, mm. at, you know, continuously making sounds of a, a laboratory darkroom. Yeah. And, and it was like, oh, let's try this. Why not? Mm, you know? Yeah. So was it that kind of Australian new wave movement? Did it kind of feel like you were starting from nothing? Like you were starting from the ground up? I guess so, because I didn't know anything else. You know, <laughs> I'd just come straight from school to the ABC, yeah. straight into the freelance industry, mm. and it was all just a hell of a lot of fun. And mm. you had great people that you were, you know, interesting, curious filmmakers and great friends. You know, yeah. my social life was the people that I worked with. Yeah. And we would just, you know, live, breathe, sleep the project that we were working on. Mm. And was Australia at the time kind of trying to find its feet with its style or...? I think it was just trying, each film was trying to be slightly different to the others. You know, there was horror films, there mm. was, you know, personal emotional dramas, there was, um, there wasn't a lot of blockbusters, but there certainly was some schlock going mm. on, you know, like mm. I worked on Razorback and, um, um, yeah, I, I, trying to find, I think everyone was just trying to find a stamp their own identity on the film that they were making. Mm. Mm. And there was the odd Bush Ranger film that, probably wasn't finding a new way (laughs) and I've noticed that like having watched a lot of your films I noticed that many of them are really kind of character driven pieces like really interesting dramas like the high tide and um the well and how do you how do you create interest in a kind of story driven film like that in the soundtrack well, you just have to follow the characters mm. and you have to, usually the interest is already there because those particular films that you've just mentioned, like High Tide and The World, have been beautifully sketched in mm. the in the script stage. They're, they're, the scripts are really solid. So they just work on a level of their own. So what you do is you try and sculpt the characters a bit more. So, you know, one of the characters in The Well, we knew she had a limp. Mm. Um, so we just accentuated the limp, you know, because she was disabled. She was emotionally disabled mm. as well as physically disabled. Mm. And so that's what that sound is kind of helping to tell you. Plus she was the gatekeeper of the property. So we always made sure that if whether you saw it or not, that her keys jangled mm. that she had in her pocket. Mm. You know, I very early on I learned a really good trick is if there was ever a baddie on screen, mm. you just put change in their pocket in the folding. Really? Yeah, of course baddies always sound like people that are trying to gr- greedy for money. So you just put... <laughs> coins in their pocket when you do the foley you know yeah 
That's interesting. Yeah. So, and then then there's also depending on there's always a, a scenes where it requires real sound design. You know, yeah. A turning point moment. Mm. You mm. know, winds and playing with natural playing with the natural atmospheres is something that I quite like to do. In yeah. the well, for example, there's a scene. There's a sort of there's the rosy period in the first act, and mm. then after that, there's a certain point where everything turns sour. From that point, we just we made sure that all the atmospheres had no birds in them. Mm. So you, it's. To me, it's often about taking things away yeah. to create a sense yeah. of yearning. Mm. Yeah, The Well is a really freaky film. Mm. Kind of, it's unsettling, but not really scary. Mm. What was that like to work on? Oh, just brilliant. Yeah. I mean, Samantha Lang's a fantastic director and yeah. Danny Cooper's a great editor and it was a nice little core group of people in, and a great script and, mm. um, well, good supporting um, producer. Mm. Um it's just a great experience. Mm. Um, we did a lot of recordings. We went out, you know, I'm going out to the Janolan Caves and recording things deep in the earth, in the bowels of the earth. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Was that Trying just, to find caves that, that didn't have water drips in it was important. <laughs> was that for like Atmos? Atmos, um, we'd record things in there. So really? that we've got the natural yeah. reverb of those great big cavernous spaces like yeah. the well. Mm. You know, you're always trying to make things bigger and bolder mm. than they or sound bigger and bolder than they really are. Yeah. And it was great because I was the supervising sound editor. So I did all the work with the actors as well. And I yeah. do like doing having those times in the ADR studio when you're re recording mm. breaths and yeah. things like that. It's great. And Gillian Armstrong is quite a. Uh, big name in Australian film. What was she like to work with? Oh, she's brilliant. She loves mm. she loves sound. She loves um she has a good um she always has a good sort of strong themic line through her films. So mm. I've worked on a few of hers. I've worked on a documentary Unfolding Florence and High Tide. Um Yeah, she's good. She'll let you have your head, but she also is she's got her own determined ideas of how things should be and mm. so she's she, there's a lot of input from her which is yeah. great yeah yeah i saw when watching your filmography that um a lot of the films that you've edited and worked on like contact i absolutely loved that documentary yeah, and, it's good isn't it that um, made me go to the center of australia straight afterwards oh, I, really? I often find that i'll work on a film and then i'll go wow this place is really incredible and yeah. fascinating and the, straight after we finish the mix i get on a plane or yeah. take the kids, you know, mm. there and go just to experience more of it. Yeah. You've worked on a lot of really kind of very distinctly Australian stories. Mm. Do you find that, like, Australian cinema has developed a distinctive style, like, or in the soundscape even? I, I, you might have said that, you know, in the 80s and 90s maybe. Mm. I think we, we we have different times where we're pushing a different agenda. So in the 90s it was always about sort of growing up, coming of age type films. Mm. Um, and in the 80s it was, you know, the wide brown land. 70s and 80s it was the wide brown land. And, of course, you can tell an Australian film from the accents, mm. you know. Um, and I, I would s- but I wouldn't say that was the case now. I think Australian films, it, like it really just depends what, what the subject matter is. Mm. Like I sometimes think that we err a little bit more towards a European sensibility in the soundtrack, mm. um, which I think I prefer too. But, you know, animations that we do, Happy Feet, for example, is every bit it sounds every bit like an, an American mix. Mm. Um, 
But I do like the in the human dramas being able to hear the space around people's voices. Mm. I don't want to hear masses of room because that's mm. not important, but I yeah. want to hear a li- not quite as closely mic'd as, say, all the American yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And also human dramas, they need space, mm. whereas there's not much space in a you know, 20 frame cut every three seconds action movie from Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it before that American films often have that kind of unrealistic sound to it, I guess. Well, we've come to think that it's realistic yeah. and, it, you know, if it's uh, an action movie or mm. an animation, it almost is you know, with mm. the masses of CGI in it, well, that's unrealistic. But mm. that's that's the story that we're that's the story where we're in, and we believe it. I don't think it's wrong. Mm. I just think that um, Australians don't do a lot of them. So I guess, mm. um, you know, we don't have a lot of big blockbuster. Mm. You know, Fast and Furious Seventeens. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so. How else do you try and find the realism in those dramas? Well, there is always realism in it. Yeah. It's just a matter of deciding what's realism about a shoot yeah. and what's realism about the story world of the characters. Mm. When I get asked to work on a film, I usually know who the director is, but the second question I ask is, who's the sound recordist? Oh, really? Yeah. Because yeah. that will tell you what your work, how difficult or, uh, or mm. not your work's going to be. Yeah. And... Um, you know, a good sound recordist with a boom mic, even if it's not always used, mm. um, is is really, you know, that tells you what the flavour of the soundtrack is going to be. You get rid of the, the shoot extraneous sounds and you keep the story world of the characters. And quite often the story world of the characters will be a great central tentpole for everything else, for all the other sound design, mm. you know. And... You've been involved a bit in theatre, haven't you? Yeah, I love yeah. theatre. I'm doing a play at the moment, actually. You're, are you acting? <laughs> no, no, just doing sound design. Really? Yeah. You're doing sound yeah, design yeah, for... Yeah, just for a local... Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and I've also done quite a bit of stuff with museums and things, so interactives. Yeah. How do you, how do you find that work different to film? I love it, mm. but it doesn't pay. <laughs> so I love theatre work I love the kind of core ensemble group of people I Mm. love the fact that you're putting on a show you know I was one of those kids that put the the sheet up on the clothesline and put on a show for the the parents you know I love that idea um and it's quite like that still, even mm. <laughs> even for the high-end theatre companies yeah. in Australia. Mm. So um, it's a really creative process and there's a great deal of autonomy in what you do. You work pretty closely with the one director, but mm. you're not on a massive big team. Mm. Um, sometimes on films in Australia today I feel like a small cog in a very large machine mm. and theatre it's, it's much more creative and interpretive and plus you get to... You know, you get to hang out, hang out with actors and directors for a good pre-production period, mm. not just one day of a spotting session, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you get a kind of better feel for the characters and the yeah. story and that kind yeah. of stuff? Yeah, and you watch it change and you mm. watch them workshop and you go with it, mm. you know? Yeah. So do you kind of develop the soundtrack during their production and... <laughs> You'll Do have it a sc- in consultation with them? Like- yes, of course, because there's a lot of rhythm and pacing to mm. work out at its very basic level. Yeah. But um, you'll have a script also, so you'll gra- grab all the sound cues that you think you might need, but then that will, of course, change as time goes on. And, and to be honest, theatre sound 
it's not layers and layers of sound. It's sort of specific moments, beginnings mm. and ends of scenes, you know, mm. and cues that the actors are, are responding to. Mm. But there's, it's not a continuous sound design. Mm. Yeah. That must be quite interesting, not really having to think about like Foley or spot effects and the realism of it, but the yeah. kind of emotional sound. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Does it be- kind of become like music then? Oh, and quite often it is music. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Do you compose much for it? Or? No, mm. no. I just use cues that they give me to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that are in the script. But, you know, I have to work out how to pace it and which part of it to use and, yeah. and you know, get... Do, do the live sound when it's actually happening, which mm. is fun. What software do you use for that? Oh, I'm just using my Pro Tools system. Oh, really? Yeah, in you... through the desk at the theatre. Right. Yeah. I didn't know what they used for theatre. We can but... use all different sorts of things, yeah. but that's what I use. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Just to... Before I came along, they were just using their iPhone. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I improved the situation quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the iPhone wouldn't always play when you press play. <laughs> <laughs> What about um, Australia, the film Australia? Oh, yeah, yeah. That would have been a pretty fabulous three one. Three films to... in one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like three films in one film. Yeah. Um, it was amazing. Yeah. 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 I, I was doing um, uh, ADR. I don't think I did any sync dialogue on that, but, yeah, I was just cutting ADR and doing some recordings of ADR. Mm. Um, it was changing all the time and, mm. you know. The world of recuts and reconforms was mm. kind of the main game towards the end there, but um, yeah, it was it was an interesting film to mm. work on with some great actors. Yeah, yeah, some really really high caliber Australian mm. talent. Yeah, have you done much work in ADR? Yeah, in general, a lot. I quite and I like it. I, yeah. as you can gather, I kind of like people and yeah. workshopping stuff and yeah. playing with performance and mm. so yeah. I mean, it's great if you don't have to do it, but if, yeah. if you have to do it, it's a good opportunity to play and improve a performance sometimes. Yeah. yeah. What, do you, what do you think makes a good ADR person? Someone who trusts the process. Mm. The actor needs to trust the process. The actor yeah. and director needs to trust the process. Um, you mean in, in terms of the performer or...? No, the recordist or... Real attention to detail. Mm. Things like, you know, open mouth breaths or close or breaths through the nose can make all the difference into whether whether the film, whether what you've captured is actually believable or not. Mm. And also I, I, a lot of recorders don't like this when I work with them, but I sometimes get them to back off the microphone a little bit Mm. and move around a bit. Mm. And I don't mind this sort of on-off mic thing sometimes because it actually beds in better usually with the sync. Mm. You've worked a lot in documentary and what I'm always curious about is how soundies try to kind of retain authenticity to a real story when it's kind of a really just constructed craft. Yeah, but you have to honour the location sound that you're recording. Mm. You have to. You can't do ADR Mm. on, you know, someone's emotional retelling of something that happened to them Mm. you know you wouldn't want to go into a refugee camp and say could you just do that again because (laughs) a plane was going overhead you you know you can't um so you have to really honor the the location recordings Mm. but i mean the way to make a creative documentary is to create sequences and spaces where sound can can play out and and, i mean archival footage is a great example of that Mm. you know 
Yeah, Contact was like basically half archival footage, right? Not or, quite, but yeah, there was lots of archival yeah, footage. Yeah. So how do you kind of add emotion to that? Because would it have also been silent? Very hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you don't want to do everything that you see. You just want to highlight the important things and you sort of don't want to do it, those important things 100% of the time when they're mm. on screen because contact was actually beautifully um, shot archival footage but yeah. not all archival footage is like that it's yeah. usually an amateur you know yeah. and and they might hold on the shot too long or they you know um, I did many years ago one of the first films I worked on was a television series actually it was a thing called The Last Bastion where they used quite a lot of the have you ever seen the Damien Para Kokoda Trail? It's it's quite iconic black and white film of um, soldiers trudging through mud, like up to their knees or thighs, up hills mm. and down dales, um, on the Kokoda Trail in, in New Guinea during the Second World War, shot by mm. Damien Para, and it was our first um, Academy Award, Australia's mm. first Academy Award. And there's an iconic shot of the guy with the with the crutch and the bandage around yeah, his head and yeah. one eye covered and 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 there was lots of that in this and we did masses of foley in mud but then you can't and we'll do it but then you have to be very careful you don't want to hear everything mm. you know? mm. it has to be more subtle than it has to be like, quite subtle and, yeah. and you don't, and you certainly don't fill it up and i look at a lot of um i was watching something the other day um how judicious you need to be with me you might not hear the car passing and the bicycle, but you just might hear the atmosphere of something, mm. you know? You've got, to, you've got to pick which layer of the mm. sound you're going to use mm. at any one time. Yeah, that's what I noticed watching yeah. a lot of the films that you've done sound design on. It's all so subtle. It's not like I felt like, for example, The Well could have been a completely different film if someone had made the soundtrack a lot kind of darker and moody and intense because it's a very unnerving story. But it was handled very subtly. Yeah, what you wanted to do was think that everything actually was normal and mm. only occasionally go, is there really a man in the well? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You wanted to be curious but not but not convinced. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what your current job is? Yeah. So I'm, I'm working in the world of film archives. Yeah. I've just come back from a fantastic um, summer school in Indiana, actually, where really? I connected with 50 film archivists from all over the world. It was fantastic. Mm. Um, and I did that because we're I'm working at the State Library at the moment, and I really understand the whole film preservation area. I understand collection development when it comes to films from my time working at the National Film and Sound Archive in the curatorial area. Mm. And now I'm working at the State Library um, doing a digitisation project. So all mm. of the significant donated films that they have down in the basement, mm. um, we're about to do. We're about to digitise and mm. trying to work out which ones to do and in which order and yeah. and sort through you know the best copy and all, yeah. that and all that sort of stuff and and train people here about film mm. handling and film history. When did you get into the kind of world of film archiving then? I think it was. 2013 mm. so yeah about six years ago mm. um i it kind of happened by accident i had a, i had you know a quite normal three or four month gap before the next film was supposed to start mm. and this job came up at the national archives and i thought oh, i'll try that that'll that'll tide me over and when i went there i loved it mm. i loved it because 
There are quirky, you think, you know, you think film sound people are quirky. Well, you don't see nothing yet till you see film <laughs> archivists. Um, film archivists. But, it, but the National Archives was a really great place, actually. I, they, they were patient and taught me all of their standards, but I brought mm. with it all of my knowledge of film post-production. Mm. Um, and, um, and I was also at that, you know, being a single parent and my kids were in their middle years of high school and so... I actually came away after the first few months going, I've never felt so creative as when I've been working in this job because really? it's an ability to join lots of dots together. Mm. National Archives was, is the Australian government repository for films, mm. so it's quite political, but that's great. I mean, I love history. So I was able to join lots of dots together and mm. and work on films that to, pre- to preserve. I also was able to actually not be working 80 hours a week. So yeah. I was able to be there for my kids yeah. and have a really good work-life balance. Mm. And um, I, I kind of make, I credit the move to archiving with my children's absolute love of theatre and Shakespeare in particular, because we saw lots of plays in that time, because mm. I wasn't always at work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I produced something in that time that I'm really proud of. Mm. And mm. parenting's hard. As a sound designer, yeah, especially in this world of reconforms, yeah, you know, which is kind of and large productions, yeah, you have less autonomy than you might need to if you've got teenage children. I yeah. found, I found anyway. Mm. It was that pretty typical hours that you were working then, like eighty hours a week. No, it was more like between fifty and eighty. Yeah, but towards the end, it's always eight. You know, it gets yeah. up to eighty. For, can uh, do towards the end of a project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's un and it's a bit unpredictable too. Mm. So. It wasn't so much that it was always 80 hours. It was just random. And mm. that randomness didn't work very well with mm. bringing up children. Is there anything you think the industry could change to make work hours more accessible or less grueling at least? Um, yeah, I, I like the idea of job sharing. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's a good step in the right direction. Um, I don't know about in Australia. It's certainly like that in America as far as I can see. It's sort of much more unionised and mm. um, people know what they're doing and they've got schedules that they, that are reasonable, I think. Mm. Um, but here we're a really small industry and, you know, I'd hate to see too much um, unionisation of, of things. Although I'm a union person, but I'd hate to see too many things go, you know, no, you can't do this passion project that you have a love of because there's not enough money or time in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just have to be able to share the load, I think, a bit mm. more. Mm. You know, I, I wouldn't want to squash creative ideas just because I'm a parent. Yeah. But, um, you know, I don't really I don't really know the answer. I mean, I had to sort of move away to actually be a good parent. Yeah. So I'll work on a film and I'll say, love to work on it. You don't have to pay me a lot because I have another job. Yeah. You don't have to pay me a, a huge amount, but I need time. Yeah. You know that thing. You can have things fast, cheap, yeah. and good. You can't have all three. Mm. <laughs> you can have fast, you know, fast mm. and cheap, good and good and slow. Mm. You know? Yeah. And your current job at the State Library, does it? involve kind of judging the merit of films it does definitely yeah. when it comes to the quality of something yeah which which copy are we going to digitize mm. but it also i'm really happy that i can bring some of my knowledge of filmmakers mm. and people's key roles in the australian film industry mm. and i might not be judging that particular film and that person but i'll know a bit about that person 
and say, yeah, we should do this collection or yeah. this collection significant because, mm. you know. So um, we're probably going to digitise a lot of the stuff that we've got, but I'll be able to wrap some kind of context around it. So, mm. yeah, it's it's very helpful to mm. to make some, I wouldn't say value judgments, but just, you know, to understand the rosy glow of the of the um, the initial idea or mm. what that person was interested in mm. as a filmmaker. Thanks again to Annie for being interviewed, and as always, thanks to JD Legulon for the intro music. Uh, please remember to leave a review on iTunes, and I hope to see you next time. <laughs>